Mark chapter two, beginning in verse twenty three. Now, it happened that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry? He and those with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and he ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and also gave some to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. In the second chapter of Mark, the leaders have criticized Jesus repeatedly on now for the fourth time. They will criticize him twice for activities that they deem forbidden and twice for activities that they deem required in the beginning of the chapter. Jesus heals the paralytic in the process of healing the paralytic, Jesus claims to have the power to forgive sins in verses 1 through 12. Then Jesus calls the tax collector, Levi, who we also know as Matthew. And in celebration, he throws a party. He invites his friends to meet Jesus. And according to the religious leaders, these people are notorious sinners and the religious leaders demand to know why Jesus would associate with such terrible sinners. His response that he's come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Next, the Pharisees and the followers of John notice the disciples of Jesus aren't fasting according to the religious establishment. And the religious leaders are deeply offended. Jesus' response, wedding guests don't fast when a celebration is order. You, sorrow isn't the right response when it's time to celebrate. And so once again, they're deeply offended that Jesus doesn't observe the fasts according to their traditions. Traditions required. Joy forbidden. And now the religious leaders attention turn once more to the subject of criticism. And according to Matthew's gospel, which records the same event in chapter 12, verses one through eight, they seem to have been looking for an opportunity to catch Jesus and his disciples in something in which to criticize them. And so. The religious leaders will charge Jesus with blasphemy and encouraging the followers of Jesus to break the laws of the Sabbath. But Jesus reminds the religious leaders that the Sabbath isn't simply about the rules and regulations in verses 23 and 24. The Sabbath was instituted by God to be a means of refreshment and help to God's people in verses 25 through 27. The Sabbath was to be governed by the Son of Man, according to verse 28. 
the religious leaders suspect and perhaps even believe that Jesus is allowing his followers to abuse and break the law. But they're really the abusers. Because while Jesus is teaching and ministering, while Jesus is reminding people that there is help and hope, while Jesus is reminding people that there's provision, while Jesus is reminding people that there's healing, they're going to be plotting a little bit later on how they can kill him and put him to death. The religious leaders are the real abusers. And in their desire to strictly follow the law of Moses, they're going to wind up breaking the law. Timothy Keller writes, and I quote, Jesus claimed to be able to forgive sins. And the religious leaders called that blasphemy. But Jesus goes on to make another claim so outrageous that the leaders don't even have a word to describe it. Jesus declares not that he has come to reform religion, but that he's here to end religion and replace it with himself. Do you understand what an astonishing statement that is? What if Keller is right? Did Jesus come to end religion and replace it with himself? If that's true then everything changes and everything gets different and everything gets examined in the light of that statement. In verse 23, look what it says. Now it happened that he went through the grain fields, that's Jesus, on the Sabbath. And as they went, as went his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. Life starts off simply at first. They're walking through a field. The disciples are taking the heads of the grain and they're crushing it between their hands and they're taking the delicious little morsels and popping it in their mouth. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 24 and 25, the Bible allowed for such a thing. As a matter of fact, it says, when you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure. But you shall not put any into a container when you come into your neighbor's standing grain. You may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. In other words, the law allowed for people to walk through the vineyard and to walk through the fields. Why? The poor could eat in the field, but they were not allowed to take what was the Old Testament version of a doggy bag. You couldn't carry out the grain in a basket or in a sack. And you've got to understand something. In the world of Jesus and prior to that, there was no government aid. There was no welfare. There was little relief. There was no way in order to provide a mechanism for the poor. So God provided a way. This was God's way of allowing the poor to have access to food so that they didn't have to die. But they weren't allowed to do it on the Sabbath. By the way, do people get hungry every day of the week? Do they get hungry on Saturday? And do they get hungry on Sunday? And do they get hungry on Monday? Jesus knew that. And look what it says in verse 24. And the Pharisees said to him, look, 
Why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? The law required people to rest. The Pharisees charged the disciples with working on the Sabbath. And so the moral police pull them over and issue them two citations. One for pulling the ripe ears, that's harvesting. The second for husking the shells between their palms, that's husking the grain. Forbidden. There really were laws. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 8, 9, and 10, it says, Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day, it's the Sabbath of the Lord your God. And that's going to be important, Exodus 28. It is the Shabbat of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. Not you, not your son, not your daughter, not your male servant, not your female servant, not your cattle, not your strangers who are within the gates. It's not wrong to have rules and regulations. The problem wasn't simply the rules and the regulations, but the things that were added to the rules and regulations in order to supplant Mercy and sacrifice and grace and love. You see, the truth is we all have rules and policies and traditions. If you say that you don't, you're not being exactly honest. As a matter of fact, the issue isn't whether or not there are rules and traditions. The issues are whether they help, whether they hurt, whether they hinder or expand your love for Jesus and your love for his people. I ran across a set of office rules for a business run by a man named Zachary Geiger. He was a Christian man and it was his desire to run his business according to Christian principles. And so he handed out these rules. This is in 1872, by the way. Number one, office employees will daily sweep the floors, dust the furniture, the shelves, and the showcases. Number two, each day you will fill the lamp, you will clean the chimney, you will turn the wicks. You will wash the windows once a week. Number three, each clerk will bring in a bucket of water and a scuttle of coal for the day's business. Number four, make your pens carefully. You may whittle your nibs down to your individual taste. Number five, this office will be open at 7 o'clock promptly. It will close at 9 o'clock promptly, except on the Sabbath day, on which day it will remain closed. Each employee is expected to spend the Sabbath day by attending church and contributing liberally to the cause of the Lord. Number six, men employees will be given an evening off each week for the purpose of courting. If you go to church... You can take two evenings off a week. Number seven, after an employee has spent 13 hours of labor in the office, he should spend time reading the Bible and other good books while contemplating the glories and building the kingdom. Number eight, every employee shall lay aside from his pay a goodly sum of his earnings so that he won't be a burden from the charity and of his betters. Number nine. The employee who has performed his labor faithfully and without fault for a period of five years in my service, who has been thrifty and attentive to his religious duties, as he's looked upon by his fellow man as a substantial and law-abiding citizen, he will be given an increase of five cents a day to his pay. That is, of course, if business and profits allow for it. 
rules. They change, don't they? They change over the years. In Jesus' time, there were laws that were given. And it's the moment that Jesus challenges not the law, but the traditions that people will become undone. As a matter of fact, the religious leaders over a period of time had several different prohibitions. Certain activities were forbidden, including reaping or threshing of grain. In their way of thinking, if you rubbed your hands together, that was threshing. No work to them meant no work. Certain medical attention was allowed. Even in the religious world of the Jews, they understood that human life takes precedence over religious rules. And so if you were in danger of dying, if you were bleeding to death, you could stop the bleeding, but you couldn't put salve or ointment into the injury in order to initiate healing. As a matter of fact, when the Bible says you can't carry a burden, the religious leaders would get together and they'd say, what constitutes a burden? Let's see. Carrying five dried figs, one the rabbi said. No, four dried figs. Another rabbi said, Three dried figs. And they go, okay. If you carry anything heavier than three dried figs, you're breaking the law. You know what that meant? If you wear dentures, you can't put them in your mouth. If you lost your leg in an accident, you couldn't put your own wooden leg on. Which is pretty good because if you carried anything for more than 2,000 cubits, you've gone too far. In short... The Sabbath day became a crushing burden. It became a day not set aside to love and serve and rest. It became an opportunity to be crushed by religious observances. And so again, when Jesus begins to openly violate the Sabbath traditions, it's like declaring war on the religious establishment. And so in verse 25, it says, but he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry? He and with he and those with him. The reference that he's given is in first Samuel chapter 21, verses one through six. Many of you know the story. Saul is the king of Israel, but God has taken the kingdom away from him. Saul has dishonored, disobeyed the Lord. Samuel has pronounced judgment. Saul weeps. He grabs a hold of the prophet and the part of his robe is torn away. And Samuel turns and says to Saul, just like you've ripped my garment, guess what? The kingdom is going to be ripped away from you. And Saul began to pressure and persecute David. David was fleeing for his life. He had little food and no provision. And the band came to Nob and the tabernacle that was there. And David requested food from the priests, but there was no food to be found. The only thing that was available was the showbread. And the showbread was forbidden to be eaten by anyone other than the priests, according to Exodus chapter 25, verses 23 through 40. And despite the law, David took the five loaves and he and his men ate the loaves that were forbidden and unlawful. But the Lord doesn't rebuke David for his action. Why? 
Why is it that the text doesn't say, and what he did was wrong and God was going to punish him for it? The reason, in part, was because things weren't right in Israel. David is the rightful king in the land. Why did God allow David to do that which would ordinarily have been illegal? David is the rightful king. And these are the king's men. This isn't some sort of walk in the park. As a matter of fact, Matthew's gospel gives us a little bit more of an understanding. In Matthew chapter 12, according to Matthew's memory, he says, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples were hungry. They weren't just goofing around. They weren't just eating in order to be eating. And Matthew's gospel points something else out. It isn't just the rejection of Jesus as the Savior. At this point, the religious leaders are going to begin to reject Jesus as the rightful king of Israel. Jesus is the rightful king. Jesus is anointed, but he's not ruling exactly like David. If David had actually broken the law by eating the showbread, but isn't rebuked by Jesus for doing so. Part of the argument that Jesus is giving is how much more blameless are the disciples of Jesus to pick grain when everything isn't exactly right in Israel. And if anything, the disciples weren't guilty so much of breaking the law, but of not observing and honoring the man-made traditions that had come upon the religious leaders. And in Mark chapter 2, verse 26, it says how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat, except for the priests, and also gave some to those who were with him. Now, some have pointed out in this particular passage, this is one of the, one of the hard questions that I sometimes get on my radio program. Well, I don't get it. Uh, according to 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 1, Ahimelech is the high priest. See, the Bible's filled with contradictions. Read the text again. How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the showbread. You see, Ahimelech had a son, Abiathar, and Abiathar is going to become the high priest. He will be high priest. And in that culture and society, once you became the high priest, you received the honored title of high priest for life. And it was always used. It would be like in our own culture and society. Once you're elected the Speaker of the House, you refer to the former Speaker as the Speaker. Once you're elected President of the United States, by honor and by privilege, you retain that title all of the days of your life. When I met with a former President, I, I didn't go, Bill, dude, what's up? I said, hello, sir. How are you, Mr. President? The issue isn't whether or not he's the president. You you do the thing that is honoring in that given circumstance. And so it could very well be that Abiathar was the son of Ahimelech and he clearly showed his loyalty to David and influenced his father to permit the unusual departure from the law. As a matter of fact, the original language uses this expression, and it's hidden there if you want to pluck it out for yourself. How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the showbread. You know what it says in the original language? 
it says he ate the bread of the presence. You know why that's important? Because that's what the show bread symbolized. It's the presence of God. In other words, that baked bread, which was put and presented before the Lord and then given to the priest, represented the very presence of God in their midst. Let me ask you a question. What do you think is more important, the symbol or the or the substance? If the showbread represented the presence of God in the midst of his people and David and his friends who are hungry and desperate, they partake of the bread of the presence of God. How much more is Jesus, the literal presence of God in their midst? And by the way, the bread is the symbol and Jesus is the substance. Question. Is Jesus the son of God? Yes. Is he present with his people at this point? The answer is yes. Remember what John says. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then later it says, and the word tabernacled or pitched his tent in our very presence. There's a reason at Christmas time that we sing Emmanuel. It means God who is with us. God had a plan for David. David was a man after God's own heart. In that instance, David did, in fact, break the ceremonial law of God. If the man of God was justified because his need for bread was greater than the prohibition or the restriction concerning the ceremonial law. In effect, Jesus cites the scripture and the example of the scripture to justify the behavior of his disciples. That's not how I would have done it. I would have said... You're a frog. Now, can you imagine? There's the Pharisees going, blah, blah, blah. You can't do this, Ribbit. We're frogs now. Blah, blah, blah. I would have made a terrible Messiah. I was listening to Greg Laurie this morning, and he was talking about when Jesus is betrayed by Judas, how he makes a deal with the religious leaders that the sign of the betrayal is not a handshake. It's not a hi, how are you? It's kiss. I'll kiss him. And according to the text, it doesn't say that he just kissed him. It says that he repeatedly kissed him. And Greg Laurie goes, I'm telling you, if that were me, the moment that he tried to touch me with his lips, I would have punched him in the face. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus says, friend, do you betray the son of man with a kiss? The reality is. Jesus doesn't use an awkward manifestation of power, but he cites the scripture and its example. The scripture reveals and justifies the actions and behavior of David in this instance. And so he's appealing to the scripture to justify his own actions and his own behavior. In first Kings chapter 15, it says, nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord, his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, speaking of his son. By setting up his son after him, that's Solomon, and by establishing Jerusalem. In 1 Kings 5, it says in verse 5, because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. 
and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life. Well, what about that thing with Bathsheba? Except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Did David always do what was right? No. Did he make terrible mistakes? If you call murder and adultery a terrible mistake, uh, yeah, he did terrible things. But Jesus argues that there's biblical evidence for the law of need taking precedence over the law of ceremony. And we understand that. David took that which wasn't lawful to take in order to satisfy an immediate need. And so Jesus asks the question. If they were willing to do that for David. Then why aren't you willing to do this for me? By the way, look again at the text as it ends He says, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and also gave some to those who were with him. You know what the answer to the question is? They give no answer. The religious leaders have no answer. Do you want to know why? Because the religious leaders were great at finding fault, of criticizing. And nothing is easier than fault finding. It takes no talent. It requires no self-respect. It doesn't need brains or character. Anyone can complain. My granny, who never got an advanced degree, or any degree for that matter, still is quite a philosopher. When I refused to do what she wanted me to do, I would kick and I would scream. And my granny would say, a mule won't make any headway while it's kicking. And neither will you. Kick and kick and kick. It wasn't until I stopped resisting and started cooperating that I was able to make any progress. Someone said that Lincoln was great, not because he lived in a log cabin, but because he was willing to leave the log cabin. How will the religious leaders get out of this little log cabin labeled legalism? How are they ever going to enter into the mansion that's prepared by the Messiah? How are they going to escape their religiosity? How is it going to happen? I got to tell you, freedom is frightening for the legalist. And that's what the religious leaders did. They substituted man-made religious ideas for the revelation of God and the word of God and the will of God. This is why I say legalism is when my opinion becomes your obligation. That's really the very definition of legalism. It isn't what does the Bible have to say? It isn't what does Jesus have to say? It isn't what does what has God revealed in the person of his of the loving Savior, Jesus Christ, concerning your heart condition, concerning the condition of your life. Freedom is the single most frightening word that the legalist will hear, because the moment you say freedom, the legalist thinks, why you might misunderstand and. Misinterpret freedom to mean freedom to sin. Freedom has never meant freedom to sin. Freedom has always meant freedom to live and love and obey and serve God. 
I want you to note that. Jesus is criticized. Jesus is questioned. And then Jesus turns to the Bible to settle the dispute. Jesus believed the word of God. Jesus believed that it was an unfailing source of help and guidance. Is that what you believe? You see, the Bible teacher or the preacher who doesn't believe in an inerrant, infallible, inspired Bible can only add one more opinion to the discussion. And then Jesus says something jaw dropping. Jesus says so something so amazing and so incredible that the religious leaders will never, ever let him alone. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for God or the Sabbath was made for man. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Now, Jesus reveals God's heart on the matter. The Sabbath was instituted to serve human beings, to serve the people of God. The needs of human beings take precedence over the ceremonial law, including the ceremonial law's restrictions and prohibitions. So what does Jesus mean? The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was instituted to bring blessing and not bondage. We need rest. Most people understand that. They understand the need for rest, but very few people understand the need for worship. Worship isn't something that we we should or shouldn't have in the sense of option. We need to know God. We need to worship the Lord. It becomes a part and parcel of who we are in our fundamental being. We need physical refreshment for our body. We need spiritual renewal for our soul. Is Jesus suggesting that there's no need for rules or regulations or prohibitions or restrictions? I don't think that that's the point that he's making. I think what Jesus means is that the real need of human beings takes precedence over rules and regulations and prohibitions and restrictions. In what way is man more important than the rule, the regulation, the ceremony, the ritual, the religion? Man's rest and worship can be temporarily interrupted in order to address pressing needs. At the turn of the century, there was a vast amount of food that was placed on a boat and sent to Africa in order to alleviate hunger. But the people refused to unload the boat because it was the Sabbath day. Really? Really? Yeah, we can't unload the boat because it's the Sabbath. But there are people who are hungry and they are dying. And every moment we delay, another person dies. And if ever there was a time when people were perishing. It wasn't just a physical hunger that was present, but it was a spiritual hunger that was present. And Jesus is the bread that's come down from heaven. He isn't just simply the symbol of the presence of God. He is the substance of the presence of God. But people want religion. And by the way, religion and relationship will always struggle with one another. You know, one of the surest signs of religion is to keep Jesus dead, to keep Jesus irrelevant, to keep Jesus out of the discussion. 
In a world of religious Jews, the law of ceremony had become way more important than the law of human need. Sacred things had become more important than the saints. But sacred things are never more valuable and never more useful than when they're used to meet the needs of human beings. Acts chapter 20, verse 35, Luke, writing about Paul's adventure, said, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this, that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And Jesus isn't just saying that as a religious statement or a philosophical statement. He is going to give himself. And no wonder when he says in verse 28, the jaw dropping statement, therefore, the son of man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm sure that their palms started sweating and their armpits started leaking like a shower and their guts became twisted as they began to think of the implications of what Jesus is saying. In Matthew chapter 12, remember in verses 7 and 8, Matthew adds, but if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless for the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Jesus is the Lord, not just of Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. He is the Lord of Sunday sundown to Monday sundown. Jesus is the Son of Man. Look what it says in the text. Therefore, the Son of Man, who is the Son of Man? According to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, it is a prophetic title of the coming Messiah. It is in Mark chapter 10, verse 32, and Luke chapter 9, verse 18, and several other places. Jesus is called Emmanuel. Jesus is called Messiah. Jesus is called the King of Kings. But the very favorite word that he uses to describe himself is this one. The Son of Man. It's the title that identifies him as human. It speaks of sympathy and identity with human beings. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus is the one who fulfills scripture. In Mark's gospel, Jesus is the ministering servant. In Luke's gospel, he's the son of man. And in John's gospel, he's the son of God. The moment that he makes this statement, Lord of the Sabbath, he is claiming equality with God. Who brought the Sabbath? God. It's called the Lord's Sabbath. Which Lord? Jehovah. And now Jesus describes himself as the king, the ruler, the Lord of the Sabbath. And in describing himself as the king and the Lord, minimum... He's claiming equality with God, but he's also claiming the ability to make the rules in his own kingdom. I'm going to ask you a simple question. Does Jesus have the right to change or modify or redirect procedures in his own kingdom? It seems funny that we should even have to ask such a silly question. 
Does Jesus have the right to work on the Sabbath? He speaks, he teaches, he loves, he heals. The text seems to indicate that it's Jesus who decides what is allowed and what isn't allowed. And that becomes maybe one of the most important things that you could ever learn. Especially if you're one of those people who wants to know, well, what's allowed and what's not allowed? What can I do on Saturday and what can I do on Sunday and what can I do on Monday and what can I do on Tuesday? You are allowed to do whatever Jesus allows you to do. And you're forbidden from doing anything that Jesus forbids you to do. But people are hopelessly, helplessly religious. People want to know, what can I do? What's the minimum I need to do and still be a Christian? Ask Jesus. He's not talking to me. Well, let's try and make that different. Let's open up a line of communication so that he will talk to you. As shocking and surprising as it is, Jesus gets to decide what's allowed and what's forbidden. Almost weekly on my radio program, I'm asked, should we worship on Saturday? Should we worship on Sunday? Did Constantine change the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday? And I'm more than happy to answer those questions. But the short answer is the Christian doesn't have a Sabbath day. The Christian has a Sabbath God and a Sabbath Lord. Jesus is our Sabbath. He is our rest. He is the satisfying solution to the problem of sin and to the problem of being accepted by God and known by God or enter into relationship and fellowship and friendship with God. And by the way, if you do want to know the answers to those questions, you can go to gotquestions.org. Go to gotquestions.org, type in the question, should we worship on Saturday or should we worship on Sunday? Did Constantine change the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday? The short answer, Jesus didn't change the Sabbath for the Jew from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday to sundown on Saturday to sundown on Sunday. The Christians aren't obligated to keep Sabbath rules or restrictions or obligations. The Christian is not under the obligation of Old Testament Judaism, including Sabbath keep, keeping. Romans 10.4, Galatians 3.23, Ephesians 2.15. Christians are free to love and worship and honor Jesus every single day. Does that shock you or surprise you? The point of the passage wasn't to settle the dispute on whether or not Christians should go to church on Saturday or Sunday. The point of the passage is for Jesus to remind the people that God's very presence was there. And whether or not we're going to use our freedom as an opportunity to promote legalistic bondage or hinder people and cite religion as the reason for hurting them and hindering them and enslaving them or impeding their growth. And so, we desperately want to ask the question, well, which day is the Lord's day? What am I allowed to do or not do on that day? You want to know why? Because people are hopelessly religious and they want to do religious things. Can you imagine having a religious relationship with your husband or your wife? Hey, what do I have to do? 
in order for me to still remain married to you. Okay, I'll talk to you on Sundays for two hours. I'll pay close attention to you. But on Monday, I I just want to know what I can do. On Tuesday, I want to know what I can do. On Wednesday, you know, I just want to be on my own. You mean relationship is a full-time kind of a thing? But that's the way people are. Later in Matthew chapter 12, in that same context, in this context, Jesus is going to ask a question. He's going to ask the question, is it wrong to do what's right? In Matthew 12, 11, he says, then he said to them, what man is there among you who has one sheep? And if it falls into the pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out of how much more value then is a man than a sheep. Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. What are you free to do? Everything that's good. What are you prohibited from doing? Everything that's evil. By the way, does it make sense to you? Is it okay to do good on the Sabbath? What do you think the answer is? Is it lawful to do what's good on Sunday? Is it probably a bad idea to do unlawful things on Sunday? How about Monday? And see, we Christians are allowed to glorify God and bless our neighbor and exercise goodness each and every day. But people would much rather fight over which day is the Sabbath day than to love and serve and submit and honor the Lord of the Sabbath. It's not a sin to worship God on Saturday. It's not a sin to worship God on Sunday. It is a sin to require Christians to do what the Bible never required us to do. And to forbid Christians to do What Jesus always insisted that we do. No matter what you believe about the Sabbath, who can dispute that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath? And now you understand. Christians don't have a Sabbath day. We have a Sabbath God and a Sabbath Savior. Blessed is the man who can adjust to the set of circumstances without surrendering his, his convictions. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, it says, He put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. Jesus is the head. Jesus is the Lord. There's nothing so strong and there's nothing so safe in an emergency than simple truth. Thomas Akempis wrote, without the way, there's no going. Without the truth, there's no knowing. Without life, there's no living. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, Paul wrote, now the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But freedom is scary. The religious leaders are fearful that if you exercise too much freedom, you might offend God. Don't work, okay? If we can't work, then we'll build walls and fences so that we don't offend God. If God says don't work, we're going to play it safe. We won't pick anything up. We'll make boundaries so that nobody else can pick anything up. So today, the modern Pharisee isn't simply content to look at what Jesus has to say in the Bible. 
They want to make up rules and regulations, but it's not even that. They're not content to simply make up rules and regulations for themselves. They want to make up rules and regulations for you. Hence, legalism, when my opinion becomes your obligation. And so the modern Pharisee allows empty traditions to replace forgiveness, fulfillment, fellowship, freedom. By the way, does religion bring forgiveness? No. Jesus forgives sins. Fulfillment? No. Jesus brings fulfillment. Fellowship? There's a form of fellowship, but it's never satisfying. Freedom? No. With the law comes bondage and restriction and prohibition. Jesus is interested in saving people. Jesus is interested in healing people. Jesus is interested in forgiving people. And the religious leaders? They're interested in figuring out a way get rid of Jesus. And for those of you who hold on to religion, make no mistake about it. That's exactly what you will do. You'll figure out a way to get rid of Jesus. You see, the law of need will always take precedence over the law of ceremony. And people will always be more important than rituals. You want to know why? Because that's the way Jesus sees it. Sacred things are not made less sacred when they're used to meet human need. And imagine the moment that David took the bread that was a symbol to represent the presence of God in order to nourish and bring sustenance to himself and his friends. He is going to do what God has always meant for him to do. He's going to give birth to a son. Solomon and his son is going to give birth to a son and his son is going to give birth to a son and his son is going to be a, a, give birth to a son. And Jesus's favorite title for himself is the son of man. But you know what his second favorite title is of himself? The son of David. Why do you suppose he calls himself that? Because of all of the wickedness and all of the failure of David? Or is it because in spite of wickedness and in spite of failure, David is constantly finding a way to get back to God, to get back to the plan of God, to get back to a friendship and a relationship with God? Let me ask you a question. Does it kindle a fire in your heart when you see Jesus defy man-made rules in order to minister to people who are in desperate need? You see, the ultimate work of Jesus is to heal us of our sin. Jesus wants to bring us freedom. When the old religious structures prevent us from experiencing abundant life. You know, I'm going to give you one little short test before you go. It's a simple question and all you have to do is answer yes or no. Question number one. God's love for me depends on what I do. The answer is yes or the answer is no. Number two, meeting the expectations of others, especially those in my congregation or in positions of authority. That's the most important thing. 
Number three, I try hard to obey God and it irritates me when others think that they can get away with avoiding the same level of dedication that I have. Number four, I tell my children not to do something in church or around other Christian families that I allow in my own home. Here's another one. I sometimes worry that people might take advantage of grace if it's preached too much. They might think that they can do whatever they want. And my favorite. After being around Christians for a while. I just feel so drained. By the way. If you answered yes to any of those questions. The chances are that God is still at work in your heart and in your life. Preparing you for freedom. Replacing religion. With friendship. And relationship. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. And Lord, what an amazing concept that Jesus comes not for new religious principles and new religious ceremonies and new religious structures. But that he's going to destroy religion and he's going to replace it with friendship and relationship with himself. Heavenly Father, we, we begin to understand why the Bible places such an emphasis on knowing and loving Jesus. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray. We pray that you would help us, help us, Lord. Because we're addicted to a lot of different things. And maybe the most wicked thing of all is religion. And so, again, Lord, we pray that you would prepare our hearts. That you would replace religion in our hearts with Jesus that we would come to know him and love him, receive forgiveness from him and walk in faith and love and joy and obedience with him. In Jesus name. Amen. Let's stand.